We'll read this morning from Scripture, uh, Gospel of John, chapter 20, 19 to 29. First, we ask God to lead us. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see and ears to hear your word. Thank you that you answer our prayers. In his name, amen. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The word of the Lord. Over the past several months, uh, you may have noticed that the news has been full of the latest uh, developments in artificial intelligence, uh, especially the new AI chatbots like uh, ChatGPT. And I've had some fun exploring uh, this technology, but I want to assure you uh, that I did not ask ChatGPT to write my (laughs) Easter sermon today. I was tempted. If you've explored this area at all, you know that there have been some amazing results uh, from this technology. Uh, You can ask the the chat to to write things, to write a sonnet, uh, to summarize a book, to plan a vacation, all all, all sorts of stuff. But there have also been some problems. Uh, One of the problems has been what the the tech companies call uh, the chat's hallucinations. The, The AI programs have a tendency to just make up certain kinds of information sometimes and just present it as if it's straightforward fact. And this is a big problem. The the Washington Post recently reported on a law professor who discovered that ChatGPT had placed him on a list of legal scholars who had sexually harassed someone. But it never happened. ChatGPT just made it up. Uh, The same day, uh, another outlet reported on an Australian 
who found that ChatGPT claimed he'd been convicted of bribery and sentenced to prison, though he was the mayor of a town. It, it was another complete fabrication. The AI bot has invented books and studies that don't exist, uh, publications that professors didn't write, fake academic papers, and false legal citations, among other things. Just yesterday in the New York Times, an article entitled, uh, Can We No Longer Believe Anything We See covered the latest advancements in AI tools that create realistic-looking photos and videos, deep fakes that are almost impossible to distinguish from reality. All this may ask, uh, leads me to ask the question, what would the Apostle Thomas's response be to this new AI world? I think he would have some questions. And this is a good reminder uh, that doubt has an important role to play in the discovery of the truth. Uh, the pastor, Tim Keller, has compared doubts to antibodies in an organism that exist to fight off harmful bacteria and viruses. He writes this, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. It's remarkable uh, in the story that we heard today uh, from the Gospel of John and many other places in the Bible that the doubts and the struggles of people are included in the story of Jesus. They're not hidden or covered up, but they're a part of the story. In John 20, uh, prior to verse 19, the disciples have already been told by some of the women that Jesus is risen. Some of the men have gone to see the empty tomb, but they don't understand and they're afraid. And Thomas is the most doubtful of all. He doesn't even show up at the disciples' first gathering. Uh, I love these accounts of the resurrection because we can all find ourselves in this story, believers and unbelievers and all of us in between. Uh, this morning, I want to invite us to consider three things that we learn uh, from this text. First, the reality of Easter. Second, the meaning of Easter. And, and third, the power of Easter. Let's start with the reality of Easter. When Christians confess that Jesus rose again on the third day, what are they saying? They're not saying that he just rose in spirit, or that he rose metaphorically, or that he rose symbolically. They're saying that he rose again bodily with flesh and blood. The story of Thomas makes it clear that this is what the first Christians intended. Uh, he says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas doesn't allow for a metaphorical resurrection. It's not how he understands the disciples' claim to have seen the Lord. And when Jesus comes back a week later, he invites Thomas to see him and to touch him. 
It's this reality that leads Thomas to declare, my Lord and my God. We find this, the same thing in the rest of the New Testament. After he is risen, we're told that Jesus eats with people, he walks with them, he teaches, he appears to hundreds of people who told others that Jesus was alive. If the gospel writers were sharing eyewitness testimony to the bodily resurrection of Jesus, there, there's something else important for us to notice. If they were just making up stories to convince people that this had happened, they wouldn't have made up stories like these. There's something very human about how they report on these events. They include something, some very strange and, and mysterious details, like Jesus entering into this locked room where the disciples are gathered. Earlier, uh, Mary doesn't recognize Jesus at first. It's very strange. After 40 days, we're told that Jesus disappears into heaven. If the author's goal was only to support Orthodox Christian teaching about Jesus' bodily resurrection and put that story over on people, he would have left out these strange details. Instead, what we find is continuity and discontinuity with our human bodies and Jesus' resurrection, which is maybe what we should expect for someone who has entered into death and come out the other side. It seems much more likely that the gospel writers were recording their experiences or the experiences of their sources honestly, even when they didn't understand fully how all the pieces fit together. The historian N.T. Wright puts it like this near the end of his uh, magnum opus, his, his 800-page study of the resurrection. He says, if you were a follower of a dead Jesus in the middle of the first century, wanting to explain why you still thought he was important and why some of your number had inexplicably begun to say that he had been raised from the dead, you would not have told stories like this. You would have done a better job. What he's saying is that we misunderstand the reality of Easter if we think that the early Christians were just the kinds of people who believed these sorts of strange stories because they were religious people or gullible people or ignorant people. What Thomas and the other disciples show is that they were people who didn't expect the resurrection and they didn't believe it at first, but they became convinced that it was true. In a way, this brings us to the heart of the Christian faith. The Christian story is not a story of spiritual people who are ready to embrace the risen Jesus. It's not the story of smart people who are able to figure it out on their own. It's the story of doubting, uncertain, confused, fearful people whom Jesus moves towards and whom he blesses. This is why I love the figure of Thomas. Jesus is not just for those who showed up at church the first time. He also comes back a week later for the one who didn't show up. And he invites him to believe in the reality of the resurrection too. If the resurrection is a reality, then what does it mean? What is the meaning of Easter? It's often by putting things in context that we learn what they really mean. So, for example, I mentioned an article earlier that ran in the New York Times about deep fake photographs. 
Uh, one of the photographs included in the story was an AI-generated uh, photo of the first moon landing. But in this photo, the astronauts are surrounded by men not wearing spacesuits and behind cameras. Uh, and their point was this could be created by this technology by someone who wanted to claim that the moon landings were staged. If only you could see the larger context. Of course, the larger context that we need to see is that we now have this technology that can create fake photos uh, that don't represent reality, but are actually a distortion of it. The, the point is that the context matters, and it changes your interpretation of the event's meaning. So what was the context of the resurrection for the first Christians? We've said that they affirmed its reality. They believe that it really happened. But part of the, the purpose of the Gospels is to put the resurrection into the right context so we can understand its deepest meaning and, and significance. And this context is the story of the Hebrew Bible. Let me explain. There are three details in our text today that are especially important. First, in verse 19, John is careful to highlight that what happens here is still on the first day of the week. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week. He had already said this back in verse 1. When, when Mary arrives at the tomb in the dark, he is also careful to say there that it was the first day of the week. He says it twice to make his point, that just as God rested on the seventh day in Genesis 1, Jesus rested in the tomb on the Sabbath, and just as God began the creation on the first day, Jesus' resurrection is the dawn of a new creation. The second detail makes this even more clear. In verse 22, it says he breathed on them. Sort of a strange thing to find here, isn't it? He breathed on them. It makes a lot more sense when we realize that the Greek word that is used here is also used in two other important places in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, when God creates Adam, uh, it says he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And in the book of Ezekiel, in chapter 37, there's the famous vision of the, the valley of dry bones, where the prophet is told to command breath to bring new life to the dead bones. Ezekiel 37, verse 9 says, This is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, breathe, form the four winds, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So Jesus, again, he breathes on his disciples, symbolizing this new creation, resurrection life moment. Finally, Jesus tells the disciples to receive the Holy Spirit. This reminds us of the Spirit of God hovering over the waters in Genesis 1. And really, John, the, the, the gospel writer, has been echoing Genesis from the very beginning of the gospel. In the beginning was the Word. And just as God's first words in the Bible are, let there be light, the Gospel of John says in chapter 1, verse 9, the true light that gave light to everyone was coming into the world. What does this all mean? 
N.T. Wright summarizes, the point of the resurrection is not simply that the creator God has done something remarkable for one solitary individual, but that in and through the resurrection, the present evil age has been invaded by the age to come, the time of restoration, return, covenant renewal, and forgiveness. An event has occurred as a result of which the world is a different place, and human beings have the new possibility to become a different kind of people. The message of Easter is that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ and that you're now invited to be a part of it. So often, we resign ourselves to patterns of thinking, addictions, unhealthy relationships, because we believe that nothing can really be different. It's easy to become apathetic in the face of social divisions or wrongs that seem impossible to overcome. But when you believe that Jesus is risen, it means that no matter what your experience is like today, things can change. You can change because Jesus is alive. This change begins as we turn away from our fears and we turn towards Christ and we let him breathe on us. This brings us to our, our last point, the, the power of Easter. Twice in verses 19 and 21, Jesus declares to the disciples, peace be with you. And this is both uh, ordinary and extraordinary. In Jewish culture, it's just a normal way of greeting people. But there's much more happening when Jesus shows up and says, peace. Notice the, the sequence of events in, in verses 19 to 23. Uh, the disciples are locked away in fear. Jesus comes and stands among them. He declares peace to them. He shows them his hands and his side. And then the disciples are filled with gladness. Jesus' presence, his declaration, and his actions change everything for the disciples. It's not just that they're finally convinced intellectually that Jesus is alive. Earlier in the story, it actually says that the disciples believed, but they didn't understand. The reality of it hadn't worked its way into their hearts. But that's what's happening here in this scene. The, the penny is dropping for them. The, the lights are turning on. And we often need the same thing to happen for us in the Christian life. We may believe intellectually that Jesus is risen. We may believe that the Bible is true. But what is really driving us in our everyday lives is our fear. Fear of other people, or fear of loss, or fear of failure. And this is why it often takes a tragic event or some great failure or loss to wake us up to our need for Christ's power. Some of you uh, know that I've been fascinated in recent months uh, with the story of the Australian musician Nick Cave and his return to faith. I now have concert tickets to see him in September. Uh, I shared uh, his story a few months ago, uh, but for those of you who may not be familiar with uh, this particular musician, he's an indie rock star. He's the founder of the, the band Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. 
He's well known for his baritone voice and, and the poetry of his lyrics. He's a rock star's rock star. And sadly, in 2015, he and his wife suffered this heartbreaking tragedy when his 15-year-old son, Arthur, a twin, fell from a cliff and died near their home in Brighton, England. But surprisingly, uh, rather than move him farther away from faith in God, this tremendous suffering has brought him closer. Uh, in some mysterious way, he says that he has experienced God's presence with him in his sorrow. And I've shared this quote before, but I wanted to bring it again today and say a few more words about it. Uh, on the Reflections page, on page four, you'll find a, a quote from him from an interview. And in this interview, the, the interviewer, Sean O'Hagan, is trying to understand Nick Cave's faith. And he says, so just to make sure I've got this right, you would like to get past your doubt and just believe wholeheartedly in God, but your rational self is telling you otherwise. This interviewer is trying to make sense of what Cave is saying by giving him a choice between reason and faith. But listen to Cave's reply. He says, well, my rational self seems less assured these days, less confident. Things happen in your life, terrible things, great obliterating events, where the need for spiritual consolation can be immense, and your sense of what is rational is less coherent and can suddenly find itself on sh very shaky ground. We are supposed to put our faith in the rational world, yet when the world stops making sense, perhaps your need for some greater meaning can override reason. And in fact, it can suddenly seem the least interesting, most predictable, and least rewarding aspect of yourself. That is my experience anyway. I think of late, I've grown increasingly impatient with my own skepticism. It feels obtuse and counterproductive, something that's simply standing in the way of a better lived life. I feel it would be good for me to get beyond it. I think I would be happier if I stopped window shopping and just stepped through the door. What he's saying is that the choice is not between reason and faith, as if they're opposites, but it's a choice between faith and what he can understand, what he can control, a faith in what is quote-unquote rational, or stepping through the door and placing his faith in something greater that comes from beyond this world, placing his faith in God. I think it's very similar to what Jesus means when he says to Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus is saying, you, you have a choice. You can choose to disbelieve, or you can choose to believe. But in the face of the claims of Jesus, neutrality is not an option. In our text today, what finally seems to make the biggest difference for the disciples was not just the appearance of Jesus or his words of peace. The critical moment is when he shows them his hands and his side. His hands with the, the nail holes in them and his side where he was pierced by a, a spear on the cross. The risen Jesus has scars. The peace that he declares is a peace that he won even at the cost of his own life. By showing the disciples his scars, he's not just proving that he is alive from the dead. 
He's showing that he can be trusted in the deepest possible way. His peace is backed up by his work on the cross. This means that if you believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again, you may struggle with doubts, but you won't be cynical because you know at least one thing is true, that God loves you so much that he was willing to suffer for you on the cross in the person and work of Jesus. This means that the the Christian faith is not a, a naive optimism. It's not sentimental or superficial. It's not about having all the answers. It's about learning to surrender and to trust a person. If you want to have faith, if you want to strengthen your faith, the way to do that is not by looking inside yourself, but looking to Jesus, meditating on his words and his sacrifice and asking him to provide whatever you need. Friends, in a world of artificial intelligence, of chatbots, of deep fakes, what can we count on is real? The Christian answer is that what is most real and lasting is the suffering, self-sacrificial love of God, the love that he shares with us and that he invites us to share with others. It's historical, it's meaningful, it's powerful. And you're invited to trust him today. As John writes, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This, Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. None of us here have seen you with our eyes or or touched you with our hands, but we've received the testimony from others, uh, proclaiming to us the word of life. By your grace, would you meet each one of us where we are today, provide whatever we need in this moment. If it is faith, give us faith. If it's hope, give us hope. If it's love, give us love. We receive all that you have for us as a gift. Empower us by your spirit not only to receive these gifts, but to share them with others. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.